Hello and welcome to this month's episode of Jerome and Kevin Present as we are continuing our path to talking about shows which were canceled too soon. And this month we are talking about Judd Apatow's second foray and maybe his last foray into television with Undeclared. I am Kevin Ford and I am a huge Undeclared fan. Got to watch this show again for I don't know how many times I've watched the whole thing from start to finish. But my other host, Jerome, here watched it through for the very first time. We're here to talk about the show today. Jerome, how are we doing today? Uh, it's always good to be podcasting with you, Kevin, but it is especially good when I don't have to host and edit the episode. That's that's what I'll say. It's a very nice bonus. Uh, and yes, it is It is my turn to host and do this, and I'm so happy to do so. And this was my pick for this show. We talked about Freaks and Geeks, which is the more known the more beloved and gets the most critical acclaim of the shows. But I think Undeclared is a really hidden gem in Apatow's universe. And it's such an interesting show that it happened after Freaks and Geeks, but before the foray into movies. And there's an argument to be made that the frustrations felt with Freaks and Geeks and it getting canceled is what ultimately led Judd to say, let's give the movies a shot and the rest is history. So there's a lot uh, to talk about with Undeclared, with the show itself, with the incredible array of guest stars they have. But this was one that I picked, and I'm super happy to talk about. So what did you know about Undeclared before we started watching it? I knew almost nothing. I know that Judd Apatow had another show, but I did not really have have an understanding because I'm not somebody who was watching a lot of network TV in the year 2000. Uh, for for various reasons, and you know, this is a show that I, I don't know that I would have watched any network show at this point, but especially something something like this that's kind of a network comedy, and I certainly think this is far better than a lot of your network comedies, and in a lot of ways, this feels like a precursor to a lot of comedies that came afterward. I think about the fact that this is uh, the one. This is not a multi-cam sitcom. This is the kind of more of a one-camera setup. So it feels like this this show this show is literally like a year too early or two years too early because you look at the guest stars. There is an explosion by the end of this decade. You look at you know where where the guest stars are. You look at where Judd Apatow is. You look at some of the people behind the scenes in front of the camera. Like you're talking about some of the biggest movie stars, TV stars, producers, directors. By the end of this decade that this show is airing in, that's where they're at. And at this point, they're just coming off uh, kind of a failed but critically acclaimed show. And here you have kind of a, in the same boat. You've got a critical darling that, again, is just not getting enough numbers. And what's weird is that this is a Fox show, and Fox has a history of getting some really interesting cult shows, but then canceling them. I think about Firefly. I think about Family Guy. At one point, believe it or not, everyone, Family Guy was a cult show that got really popular and was brought back because DVDs, DVD sales were so good, and I think it's a lot easier in some ways to bring back an animated show as opposed to a live-action show. So that's that's kind of what Fox's reputation was at this point, and now now we think about this show and put that into the context. And this very to me, Kevin, this feels like a show that 
American Pie and some of those similar comedies were really big deal, really popular. And Fox is like, well, we want to get in on this. So we are going to, you know, have this show that is in many ways kind of a successor to an American Pie to some of those other raunchy comedies of the late 90s. I don't know. How do you feel about that? So you're not totally wrong there because there is at some point where there's an episode that's unaired that we'll talk about. And one of the reasons unaired is because it's not necessarily too controversial of the topic as it deals with religion, but road trip at the time had hit the box office and had some success. And Fox was like, if you could make this show a little bit more like this, that would be great. So you're, it may have taken like halfway through the season to get to that point, but I think you're right where you're in the, the cinematic world had presented this idea of a college show. And even you have these, uh, a, a lot of failed attempts at capturing uh, the Animal House vibe and stuff on television throughout the years that never really lasted. So there's always been sort of like a, a minor infatuation with giving a college show the old college try, and this was Apatow's attempt on Fox. Uh, so yeah, your your definitely your line of thinking is definitely I think correct with your American Pies, your road trips, that sort of comedy and the zeitgeist of. What's going on in the comedy world and movies and trying to see how that does on television? College shows are just a lot harder. And I think the reason that is, I think when you have high school shows, you can put lots of disparate people in the same place. And they're kind of all forced to be with one another in high school. Like you've got the teachers, you've got uh, the kids, you've also got the parents nearby. So everybody's kind of in one space in college everybody's kind of more separated. You kind of find your people and that's who you're around. Like you're not really being bullied in college. I mean, it does happen. Like awful things do happen on campuses, uh, really awful things. But like, I just feel like you're finding your group of people and that's kind of what it is. And I think shows have struggled, like shows like Buffy, the vampire slayer and Veronica Mars. I don't think that they were as good when they were in college as opposed to high school. And I, I kind of feel similarly here. I think Freaks and Geeks is a really good show. I think this is a good show, but I think the college part of it, I just don't think it necessarily worked as well, even though there are certainly some funny things that come from them actually being in college. To me, I, I and I've always said this, I'm a firm believer that no, that no show has ever captured the feeling of actually being in college better than community. And I still believe that, yes, there are some absurd situations and it's not always realistic, but in terms of the feel of what it's like to be in college, especially a community college, community gets it right surprisingly often. I would agree with that. There are a lot of things I found about this show to be very true. The idea of it feeling like a fresh start, trying to fit in relationship stuff, and a lot of like having these ideas or philosophy sort of flow in and out of you as you're trying to like find a new, like, who am I? What is this? What, what, what's going on here and trying to kind of get it together. And in some respects being okay with not having it together more than most shows. I feel like undeclared feels a little bit more realistic about those approaches to college than some other shows for sure. And some of the things they do that aren't realistic, like parties in the dorm and stuff, I'm sure is simply just a matter of practicality of not having to dress and find new sets or what have you. 
Yeah, it's it's a weird thing because this show feels very small a lot of the time. It feels like they're very much in that space and that's it. And you can understand that to save money, but it just when you are in a co- on a college campus, like there's so there's so many places that you're going to. Like if you're going to the cafeteria, you're going to class. Like so, that's those are some of the things that I think we're, we're kind of missing, and the fact that this is a this is basically a twenty two minute and thirty second show. Like they're they're going to have a lot of difficulty just getting through because there's so many characters and there's so much to get to. So that that that's definitely a, another issue. But you definitely feel it's funny. Like you see, you literally see. Which is fitting for a college show. Like you see, you see personas and you see people grow up in terms of their their acting skills and their comedic skills. Like you see some people grow before your eyes. And I'm going to get to a couple of people specifically that I think did that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so we'll t- I'll talk a little bit about some of the the background for this. Uh, so like you said, it aired on Fox. Judd Apatow created a uh, lot of hands in the in the casting of it, of course. Something I didn't know was that Jason Siegel was presented to be the Stephen Carp of the show, and Fox has an interesting relationship in this show because I feel like at the start they had a lot of really good ideas and seemed really helpful, and they were the ones who said no to Jason Siegel as the main role, and I'm actually very grateful for that. I think Jay Baruchel does that role way better, but there's also other gripes with Fox too, changing when it was on television, presenting some of the episodes in production order versus story order. So some stuff didn't make sense. Uh, the one unaired episode that they had, like essentially the season gets cut short. They have a couple episodes left and Judd's like, okay, I see you're airing this episode of this episode, but what about this third episode? Is that ever going to get aired? And they're like, nah, we'll hold it over to, to a second season just in case that happens. But they make some other decisions as we talk about the episodes I'll go forward that I thought were were in the right to, but lots of frustrations with Fox. Um, and the one thing that that kind of looms over the show and is sort of this narrative that a lot of the fans and some other people feel to be true is that 9-11 ultimately served as Undeclare's downfall because the show debuts on September 25th, 2001, and – not only is is it a tough is it not getting the great ratings, but it felt like the the nation was still at a point where they weren't ready to laugh again. Is sort of this perspective as it came in the wrong time where people just they just weren't interested in this type of show at that time. Uh, it was it was tough to get into after this giant monumental event in history and that and that and so of all the other things that the show was going up against the the overall feeling of the world at that time also didn't help. I actually did watch most of this show as it aired. Uh, I think it's my brother or somebody found it. And I think I was in eighth grade when this aired. Yeah, if it was 9-11, I was in eighth grade at the time. And I remember liking it then and then being thrilled when the DVD came out. And of course, I'm in eighth grade. So like my perspective is way different from a lot of people. And I found it, you know, enjoyable then or whatever. But I find that as an interesting no, like I don't know that they're saying like if 9-11 didn't happen, Undeclared would be this wild success, but it seemed like it was a lot harder to get people into a brand new comedy at this time. What do you think about that? I think that's true. I think if this show was on NBC as opposed to Fox, I think it would have found an audience a little bit easier because to me, 
I don't Fox doesn't really have a comedy brand like they have the Simpsons, they have Family Guy. So if they have a comedy brand, it's more animation. I think that's always been their bread and butter. Like to me, like when I think about like the different the different networks and kind of like what they do best. To me, NBC does the idea of the found family shows the best. And I can cite so many examples, Cheers, Seinfeld, Friends, like even their dramas like Law and Order and ER, they're kind of the same principle in that they're found families. And I think that's still true. Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Good Place, The Office, these are all found family shows. I think that's what this show was as well. So I think if if this had been on NBC, I think it would have been better. But obviously, why would Judd Apatow want to be a, have a show, have another show on NBC? I th- I just think Fox has never really they've always struggled with identity in terms of their comedies, not in terms of their politics, but in terms of their comedies. Like so, I I I almost think this would have been better off on another network, and not even like a C- CBS to me is like the multicam sitcom that's kind of what their bread and butter is like abc is really good with the family sitcoms that's been their history i I think if this had been on nbc it would have been far better yeah that's probably true um and i also like it's it's interesting i guess uh and i do kind of like that it went from the perspective of uh for judd apatow going from a tv show that's in high school that's taking place in the early 80s to now you're in college and it's modern um, he didn't go to the nineties or another eighties try at this. So I appreciated that too. It, it, in some ways there's some things that feel very of the time, but in other ways it's timeless. Like it's, it's, I'm kind of glad it's, it's a day before cell phones are so rampant and things like that. Um, all that to say is I think with a couple exceptions of stories, I think the show tends to age really well. I would say that it does in, in the, in the, in the overall stories. I think that, there are definitely some – there are some things that haven't aged well. Specifically, the first thing that comes to mind is their enjoyment of Girls Gone Wild. <laughs> yes. Google search that and find out which, why Which that's even felt dated at the time. They're watching VHSs of Girls Gone Wild. Yeah, they would probably be watching DVDs at that point. That episode is definitely – uh, my least favorite and probably my least favorite kind of ru- kind of joke throughout. But I think there there is a lot of stuff that does age mostly pretty well. Yeah, that is not my least favorite episode. I'll get to that. And boy, do I boy, is there one episode I really don't like. Uh, but I but we'll get to that when we get to that. All that said, this ha- like we talk about with a lot of shows, this has a pretty well cult sort of vibe to it, like a, a lot of cult acclaim. Entertainment Weekly in 2012 said it was the 16th best cult TV show. Then more recently in 2020, Screen Rant said it was one of the most 10 underrated shows of the noughties. And right now on Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 93% score, which is very good. Again, it's a show that I really treasure and love. Uh, I watched it even before Freaks and Geeks. So I, I was sort of the reverse for a lot of people where they watch Freaks and Geeks and wanted to give the Apatow show another try. I happened to see this on Fox. Probably I was watching Simpsons or something and saw an ad and tuned into it and enjoyed it there. Then I found out about this Freaks and Geeks thing and discovered it on DVD and we're off to the races there. But it is really interesting to, in our timeline, watching Freaks and Geeks in January, now a couple months later, going to this and seeing a lot of the overlap in the cast, which we'll talk about now. And when it comes to the cast, Jerome, I I, I quote you uh, as you're watching along the show. We often sometimes will send some thoughts to each other. And you said – 
Alison Jones really is undefeated. Yet again, the casting director for the show and yet again uh, knocked it out of the park. I mean, in some ways, I think this cast might be just because of the guest stars. Like when you include them, this might somehow be an even bigger deal. And I don't even count Adam. I feel like Adam Sandler is doing a favor for Judd Apatow. Like that's how it came across to me. But like you are literally you literally have so many people that are on the cusp of becoming major movie stars like Seth Rogen, Jason Segel. Like it's just it's incredible. And I know you want to get into the guest stars, so I'm not going to spoil all their names. But like just Seth Rogen alone, like six years after this show. He's it knocked up, and that's one of the biggest comedies of all time. Like, I don't think people really understand just how big a deal that movie was at the time. And Seth Rogen specifically, like, had a three- to four-year run of just being, like, one of the biggest stars in Hollywood. That's that's crazy to me. And, you know, since then, he you know, he's still a big deal. He's doing a lot of producing. He's doing some directing. He's doing some writing. So he has his hands in a lot of different places. But... I don't think people really understand like how big a deal Seth Rogen was for a few years there. Yeah, unless you live through it, it's it's really hard to understate. But like he was the it guy in comedy for a very long time, and you see those chops there. And I also like he is a completely different person than Ken from Freaks and Geeks in the show, and I appreciate that very much. Yeah, I, I, I for me, they had there was a just like Freaks and Geeks. It felt like it took a little bit of time, but by epi- like to me, by the Adam Sandler episode specifically, that's when it really feels like the writers clicked and when Seth Rogen's performance clicked. And that's – he is my favorite character on the show for me because just like his character just clicks and I think his character is the one that works the most over the ensuing episodes. And, you know, there are certainly other, there are other characters that I like, but for me, Seth Rogen just really stands out. All right. So we have, so he plays Ron of the four. There's four guys. Basically there's two dorm rooms and they're shared by like a shared living space. Ron is one of them. His part, his uh, roommate is Marshall played by Tim Sharp. I don't really know much else of Tim Sharp after this, uh, but Marshall is maybe my favorite character of the show. In that he's quirky, he's a little strange, but what I like about him is under that quirkiness and strangeness, he also at times is the person who has it together the most. In that he's the one who has a declared major and is very certain about what he wants to do with music, even if his music is very strange. They even have him as the deus ex machina in Attics when he has the wad of money and bails them out. Uh, He is certainly unsure about his thing with with Rachel, which is – a fun, interesting sort of dynamic between the two of them at times, and it, and he gets to be the comedy character there. But there's a lot more groundedness to him than I think he gets some credit for, and I and I think he works so well with with Ron, especially his roommate. So, and I I can't really remember any, of Tim Sharp of anything uh, major. Am I forgetting something? No, he's he's definitely somebody that I didn't really know a lot about. I think he is he's a very solid performer throughout. And I, I enjoyed his performance, and I was like, how has he not been in more stuff? Like, to me, he's one of those people, like, 
it's funny because we're talking about Adam Sandler. We're going to talk about Adam Sandler and kind of his crew. Like to me, Tim Sharp is one of those people that should like be in all the uh, Japat- Jet Apatow movies in like a small role. Like that's I was like, how has he not been in other Apatow things? He's just like kind of a glue guy who's just in all of the movies. So I think that's what kind of surprised me the most is that he hasn't been that guy. I don't think he's a lead performer necessarily in movies, but he's definitely somebody that I think would fill out a Judd Apatow like movie very well. So it looks like the only two things he was like uh, a, a main consistent character. Well, he was in using the show till death, which was a like another Fox sitcom show, like in the late two thousands. Then he did the HBO show enlightened, which you may have seen with Laura Dern. That's that may actually be a show that we discuss on uh, on this with this premise because well, that's another that? that's another canceled too soon. Yes, done there, by another Freaks and Geeks alumni, Mike White. Uh, yes, uh, which will in, and he shares a scene with with Tim Sharp here in the show, uh, and then Blunt Talk, a star show that starred Patrick Stewart, executive produced by Seth MacFarlane, that was only canceled after two seasons, so. Not some great luck, unfortunately, Mr. Tim Sharp. And then he gets, you know, a one, one episode of this here, one episode of this there. Yeah, I also was surprised that he was somebody who you don't see a lot in, in the Apatow movies. And then on the other side of the, of the male suite, you have Lloyd, played by Charlie Hunnam, of all people. It's interesting because, like, this is how I know Charlie Hunnam. And I'm sure most people are like, oh, that's the guy either from Queer as Folk or most people from Sons of Anarchy. Uh, that had was that a little bit of a surprise to see him in this role. So it's funny; those are two big blind spots for me. So I recognize him from a couple of recent movie roles that he's done. Uh, it's he is almost unrecognizable here compared to what what I've seen him in recently. So it's funny that you mentioned that he yes he has been a part of these two huge cultural events like Sons of Anarchy is a really big deal. Yes, and it's like that is a huge blind spot for me. I've never same. I've not seen it either. So, uh, so that's, that's a little different. I think he's, I think he's good in this show. I think it takes a while for them to kind of crack what his character is. But again, I think with any comedy, it just takes a few episodes to kind of, to mix the secret sauce. And I think they kind of figured out a good place for him. Their relationship kind of reminds, uh, his relationship with Steven kind of reminds me of Jay and Jeremy, uh, from the critic. That's kind of what I thought of when I was watching these two, uh, as the season went on, because they definitely developed a good rapport. Yeah. Okay. I could see that. So yeah, Lloyd, he's British. He's a, he's a drama major, uh, incredibly handsome man, and he's a really good pair off with his roommate, Stephen Carp, the main character of the show, played by Jay Baruchel. While Stephen wants to change himself coming into college, establish new identity, and tries to feign this confidence, he's painfully scared of what this college experience really is on the inside. And so having him as this nervous guy who had no luck with women, kind of strange, awkward, gawky looking to Lloyd, this handsome Lothario who is who gets with a lot of women, doesn't treat them as well as maybe a Stephen Wood, is a very is 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 a classic sort of TV show dynamic. But I think they ultimately both play it very well. Right. I think Jay Baruchel is very good. He's he's good in a lot of stuff. It's it's funny to look at his career. Like if you go back and watch Tropic Thunder which I think is a really good movie. It's in my top 100 favorite movies of all time, which you can read at entertherealworld.com. 
Jay Baruchel is essentially the lead of that movie. Uh, the other movie that I was thinking of was The End of the World, which also oh. had a lot of Apatow people in it. And he is basically the lead in that movie, too. So two of the bigger comedies of the 21st century, Jay Baruchel is essentially a lead. So he's definitely somebody that has kind of gone up and down in his career. I think he's I think he's good in this role. I think that because this cast is so big, I think there are times when Steven gets a little lost because sometimes what ends up happening is the lead character ends up because they're just always in the show. I think sometimes they can end up kind of being the most boring. And I don't I wouldn't necessarily say that he is boring per se, but I definitely don't think that he is as interesting. Like I wasn't into his storylines as much as Ron, like especially when they're trading in the stock market, like <laughs> that is some of the funniest stuff of the show. So I was kind of more into everything that Marshall and Ron were doing as opposed to Steven in some cases. This happen. I think this happens in a lot of shows like this because the, you can, the side characters you have, I think more imagination and more freedom with and the main characters, there's a little less flexibility than you can have with those characters. So that makes a lot of sense to me. But it's weird thinking that, like, this was originally pitched as Jason Siegel. I don't see him in that role at all. I don't think you – I think Jay Baruchel is, is not. the guy for this. If I saw Jason Siegel in this – if in any role, he would he would have been Marshall. Yeah. And then uh, on the female side of things, you have you have Lizzie played by Carla Gallo. That is the, the main female interest of Jay Baruchel. By the way, before I get to that, I do want to mention that – I really enjoyed the FXX show Man Seeking Woman he was a lead in. I did not see She's Out of My League, which was a movie that came out in like 2010 he was a lead in. And then crazy that he's probably most recognized by some as the voice for of the of Hiccup in How to Train Your Dragon. Yeah, he's probably made more money doing that voice over three movies and the TV series than anything else, which good for him. I mean, those 100%. movies, the the first movie especially, I would say, the first movie's a borderline classic. I think the sequels are good, but that first movie is 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 outstanding. It, it is really, really good, and Jay Baruchel is a very good, he does really good voiceover work across the series. Absolutely. Yeah, he's definitely someone you could see doing a lot of voice work. So then you get, you get Lizzie, who's played by Carla Gallo. She's the love interest of Steven. Uh, she would go on to be a regular in Carnival, Californication, Bones, Men of a Certain Age. She even played a character for a couple episodes of Mad Men. Uh, but this is like her first lead role here. Sort of this similar situation of, of a Stephen Carp trying to find herself in college while also hanging on to her high school boyfriend who is – way older than she is and he comes into play a lot here i think there's some there's some aspects of her i really like there's some things like the baby talk and stuff i don't care much for but she's someone else who i think is she one of the characters you feel like grows their acting chops over the show yeah i mean i think that i think she definitely shows a lot more growth um we're, we're gonna cause we're gonna talk about monica kina in a in a couple minutes here and yes. I think Carla Gal is definitely the stronger of the two female performances. Yeah, there's certain things I like about her where she really knows how to she really knows when to be like the doe eyed uh, female character versus the more strong pissed off one. Like she, she has good instincts. It feels like for that, for when when the when the roles calls for that and and what type of what how would Lizzie be in this moment? I think there's a lot of good understanding of that character from her for sure. 
Yeah, and I mean, I think in some ways, I think that her role can sometimes be thankless because she is the love interest. And it would have been nice to see in if there were more seasons and episodes to kind of expand her character out because I think at times it just feels like her role is to just play off of Steven or play off of Eric and she doesn't really get to like, I would love to see like an entire episode just focused on her, which you don't necessarily get that with a, with a network TV show. That's definitely something you would get now where they would, where a show has the, would, would do an episode like of a side character and just focus on that side character. And that could certainly lead to mixed results. But I think in this case, I think it would have really helped her character. And then her roommate is Monica Kina. She starts as sort of like the epitome of the, uh, the scared to be away from, home or uncertain of their major and her role grows a lot as the show goes on of sort of being an antagonist to to lizzie to a friend to to lizzie to it it switches a lot like an ally to people one of those people who thinks they that they have an understanding of something when they don't but it's hard to nail her character down she's somebody too that the actress Maybe tied with Charlie Hunnam because of Queer as Folk had the most experience before the show because she had a recurring role in Dawson's Creek before coming into this. And then really after this, it's like an episode of something here or there, a recurring role in Entourage for like a handful of episodes. And that's kind of it for Monica Kina. So this how is really the dare, how dare you forget her her borderline award worthy performance in Freddy versus Jason? How dare you? I like I've seen Freddy versus Jason. Kevin, I I'm I'm incredibly disappointed that you would not see that cinematic classic. You know what though? She did have a role in Orange County, so she ass. did. It's funny because uh, she requested to be killed on Dawson's Creek so that she could do other projects. I'm curious to know if this was the project. I love Orange County. No apologies. <laughs> so mean, it sounds like you have some thoughts on this character, though. Rachel is a very mixed bag. There are definitely some episodes where I'm like, please get her off the screen. And Monica Kina's performance is also very up and down. I think she's great on Dawson's Creek. I think that character specifically being a side character, like she's just an agent of chaos. So I think she really works there. This role, I am less convinced. I think there, it just, it's, it's very up and down. It just feels like there's some inconsistency to it in terms of like uh, her behavior. Like on the one hand, she believes in natural healing. On the other hand, she does drugs and like, there's just, there's a lot of weirdness to it. I think the funniest thing that I sent to Kevin is uh, there was a point when Rachel was talking about not going to see a doctor and believing in natural healing. And I texted that, uh, that Rachel Lindquist would be an anti-vaxxer in 2022. It's a very Northern California type, like they think they're super liberal and they think they're super progressive, but they're really just anti-science. It's a, it's a different vibe than Joe Rogan and, and that kind of anti-vaxxer. It is anti-vaxxer, but I think it's very different. It is. The, the, the sentiment behind the anti-vax is very different. Right. So then we got your kind of other main cast. Like those are your core six, the students, which I think is very strong. But then you have the other main cast. You have Stephen Karpstad, Hal, who's played by Loudon Wainwright. And while Loudon Wainwright was an actor on MASH for a little bit, I would say he's most known as a musician. And that's actually how he got to become cast is because Judd Apatow's mother was a huge fan of his and took uh, him to 
many shows of Loudon Wainwrights as a kid, and that's how he got cast as Steven's dad. And you see him a handful of times on Apatow stuff here on out. I love Hal Carp. Not in every not in every episode, but I think Loudon Wainwright plays that role perfectly. I really like Loudon Wainwright's performance. I think the writers at times it felt like they liked the character a little too much. I think that would be probably my biggest overall criticism is they shoehorned Steven's dad into a few too many episodes for my liking, and especially when you are on a college campus. Like one of the things that was weird to me, like there was so there was a cameo by Fred Willard in the first episode, but you don't really get anybody, you don't get any professors or administrators from the college, and that's really strange to me. So I would have rather have seen like another adult. And again, I think Loudon Wainwright's performance is good. I think the song that he sings in the Adam Sandler episode is is actually hilarious. It just feels like the writers fell in love with him too much, and that can sometimes happen with side characters. But I do like the line when he says, a year of TiVo would pay for like a, a portion of one of your classes, which is oh very true. God. <laughs> I mean, back when TiVo was – I mean, TiVo's still a thing, but we, we have really. generalized it. We've generalized it. It's, it's a DVR recording. Yes, now. absolutely. And, uh, it's, it's pretty incredible that TiVo – like, like we literally at one point, if we missed an episode of TV, we just we wouldn't be able to see it. Or if we like recorded it on VHS, we would have to pray that it actually just worked. And it's it's pretty. How did we ever live before the year two thousand and like seven, Kevin? It's hard to believe. I had a lot of of episodes of Raw taped on VHS for me, and then I'd watch on Tuesdays. But eventually, that tape you can only record over so many times. So those are the dark ages. I could watch it on my phone when I, if I wanted to. We're, we're spoiled to death now. We really, really are. Like, I was able to watch this show through YouTube of all places. Yeah, yeah. So that's another thing that's interesting about this show is that it is not on any official streaming platform for whatever reason, rights or what have you. But at the beginning of the, the pandemic in March of 2020, Judd Apatow put it all up on YouTube uh, in the correct production order, thankfully. And that's how Jerome watched it. I've had my DVD set forever from Shout Factory, which I believe is out of print at this time. Uh, and quality is dodgy, but it but it's at least there for people who have never seen it, can't watch it on DVD or what have you anymore. But I sure hope it does find a home on a streaming service that has the nice picture quality it would on a network televised show at some point. Yeah, I think it's one of those shows. I think it's a DreamWorks show. I don't even know where DreamWorks is at this point. So just like The Critic, I think it's kind of in purgatory. Oh, boy. Well, hopefully one day. It's it's too it's too good to not be on one of those, for especially for how important it sort of is to the general overall world of entertainment. Jason Siegel may have not gotten the main role, but he did get the role of Eric, 
Lizzie's overbearing boyfriend who is 27 years old. He's like a slacker, but he cares really intensely about Lizzie, and he cares very intensely at his high position at the copy shop where he works. And that is expressed through a lot of insane gifts to Lizzie, like pillowcases, or uh, you'll see him later. He does flowers and chocolate Eric style, those sort of things. And uh, he he's somebody who is incredibly overbearing and annoying, but there's a charm to him that makes you as a viewer kind of kind of like him too. In, in some ways, it, in, it mirrors Steven in a very different way, the annoyingness and the la- and the lovability. If if it was anyone but Jason Segel playing this role, I just don't think it would work. I think it would just come off as too creepy, and I think they dance right up to that line anyway. But Jason Segel makes it work because uh, he is he's really good, and I think you see the thing that you see in both Freaks and Geeks and this show is both the comedic timing, but also being able to act. And it's something that has served him well over the last 15 years. And as he's done other projects and, you know, he was in how I met your mother and he's, you know, done the Muppets and done a lot of independent film work. And, you know, he's going to be Paul Westhead in the Lakers show. So this is a guy who's just consistently worked because he's really good at what he does. I mean, that's the thing is that, you know, you look at Seth Rogen and what he's been able to do. I mean, there's a reason that Jason Segel has had the staying power uh, that he has, unlike, I think, some of the perhaps other people on the show and other people that have been in the uh, in the Apatow universe. He's just really able to deliver uh, in terms of performance. And he doesn't he doesn't date underage girls. And that also helps him as well. That helps a lot. And it's interesting because a lot of watching this, I think, about the alternate reality where Undeclared was this success for a season or two more. It's still, I think, I don't think that Jason Siegel's trajectory changes that much. Cause I still think he does how I met your mother and gets to do all the other things he gets to do. But yeah, he's, he's fantastic in this role. And it's one of those things where the character of Eric more or less gets three episodes of this show. And it's totally fine because it's Jason Siegel. Someday, Kevin, I really want us to do something about how I met your mother, but the problem is I really don't want to rewatch it. <laughs> Me neither. And I sure as hell do not want to watch How I Met Your Father. You know how we have canceled too soon? That show can't get canceled enough. Not not soon, soon enough. enough. <laughs> I mean, I feel bad for – I mean, there are people that I like on that show, but man, you couldn't pay me to care. Like, that bridge was burned – like, the Homer Simpson burning the gif, like, that's what the How I Met Your Mother finale did. And I will never revisit that universe ever again. All I'll say is I hope that Bob Sackett's estate gets a nice chunk of change from How I Met Your Mother – streaming rights or whatever yeah i mean i hope they all make a, a ton of money from it but man do i not want to see that show or any spinoffs or anything associated with how i met your mother father brother sister any of that no way talking about a character or an actor who has crossover with something else we've covered we have kevin rankin who played a wildly different character on breaking bad as lucian the resident advisor for the hall you don't get to see him very often. Like he's he plays a semi prominent role in like the first two episodes, then again in the back half, and then he's there as when you need him in sort of some middle episodes. So not a huge role, but sort of just like this hippie ish kind of character, lovesick for another RA who is too timid and meek to be an authority figure, which is kind of fun, and just not so great at giving advice and especially bad at poetry, but Weird to see Kevin Rankin as what he is in Breaking Bad and then him as Lucian the RA here on this show. He is also on Justified as well. And 
basically his justified Breaking Bad characters are very, very similar. So when I think of Kevin Rankin, I think I think of him more for kind of playing those kind of greasy, like awful people roles. And so this was quite quite a difference. But the funny thing is that he looks exactly the same. So uh, it's it's pretty funny. But uh, yeah, Kevin Rankin is 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 a very solid character actor. And that's really all you could say. Yeah. And he's again, my experience is different. I see Lucian. I watch Breaking Bad. I'm like, Lucian, what are you doing? De- definitely not the, the nice. Yeah, thing. for sure. All right. And then you have uh, one of the one of the re- re- recurring characters of theirs is Perry, played by Jarrett Grode, somebody else who like doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. He's done so little, but I believe once Fox turned down Jason Siegel, he was somebody who auditioned for Steven and didn't get it, but I got put into this role. Sarcastic dude. There's, there's times where he has some really funny lines. One of my favorite things in the whole show is over the credits of God visits when he is basically telling Lloyd how insane it is that he of all people is having an existential crisis uh, what's the matter, Dollface? Down in the dumps? Sucks to be you, huh? What's with you, Lloyds of London? You take one mind-blowing philosophy class and all of a sudden you're John Paul Sartre? It sucked. Oh, so now you've got this existentialist hook thing, too? Well, that's great, because all you need is a little more mystique. Now you've got a chance with all the freaky tricks I was going to get. I've taken so much acne medication, my lips are splitting in half. This might cheer you up. You're hotter than most chicks. What are you doing in college anyway? People like you don't need to know how to read. Nice nose. It seems like he's one of those characters where if they got a second season, you would have seen a lot more heart to him. And I think on subsequent rewatches, you see a little more to the character than you do in just one through. Because for the most part, I think you watch it through once. You're like, he's kind of there as a joke machine, which isn't necessarily bad. But I think he's somebody who you would have got a little more substance to as the as the series went on, if it went on. I would agree. I think he is he's of this list of other main cast. He is probably my favorite. Yeah, very, very good. And he and I watched uh, there's a on a, one of the DVD special features, like a Q&A they do. And it's actually like right before the show's ending. So it's like as the show's airing and he's there and he's very funny in real life uh, as well. Like lots, lots of the uh, the DNA of Perry is very much present in Jarek Road. And then finally, on this list, we have Tina played by Christina Piano, someone else whose IMDb page is very scarce after undeclared. So this is the interesting thing about Christina is – so you see her on one episode early as like someone who's really into Lloyd and and that gets dropped as she becomes a, a main character in the back half of the show. But the episode that doesn't air is also the one where they get the extra room and make her the new roommate. So if you're watching it on television, she just shows up out of nowhere as the roommate. And you're like, what? Like this girl went from the girl who <laughs> was exiled from her room because her roommate was having sex and really likes Lloyd to now she's a roommate of of these three. You never saw another roommate before and you're just like this. This doesn't make any sense. And then you see the missing piece of the puzzle on DVD. You're like, all right, that that checks out. So, yeah, she she fits in. So now you kind of have more female presentation on the show, a black character on the show, which is also very nice. Uh, and and she does well, I think, as as a as, as someone she she plays off and adds something different than than Lizzie and Rachel provide. I really want to see an episode where Tina's character is talking to uh, some of her black friends about how cr- how crazy the white people are. I think that's uh, something that was missing. It's tough because Jed Apatow does not have a great history with 
with putting people of color in his movies, like I think they're very much kind of put in like these very they're either supporting roles or there's kind of one or one or two. So I think that's that's kind of the situation uh, here. I think she's good. I think she certainly does uh, what she can with this role, but there there really isn't there's there's not a lot of there there, and it's uh, it's unfortunate because look the female characters in general. I think kind of get short shrift in Judd Apatow projects, um, but especially because you know being a woman of color, yeah, she's going to get even less to do. Um, but it, you know, it is good that she was on it. Certainly, I think she certainly brought something to the role. But this was never going to be her time to shine. I think. Yeah, which is very unfortunate because what she gets, she does very well. So I think we can go through the episodes pretty quickly and talk about the guest stars in each one. Uh, episode one prototype. This just every first day of college, you get to kind of get to see the the germs of what everyone's going to be. The guys throw a floor party to meet girls. And something I really like is that instead of doing the whole will they, won't they thing with Steven and Lizzie, they have sex the very first day. So now it's like, all right, is when does Steven find out she has a boyfriend? How does Lizzie deal with this with her boyfriend and will they do it again? So I like they take that off the table right away. And I think that makes it a more interesting story you still have some of the will they won't they there but it's a but it's a nice twist on it that makes it feel a little bit more fresh this is definitely one of the first shows probably chronologically that subverted the trope of the will they or won't they in some way and i think you kind of get that a lot of other shows have done it too where they've either got through it right away or they have the couple get together and then they just stay together like I think that's I think that's something that we've definitely we've gotten away from Ross and Rachel just going back and forth or Sam and Diane on tears. Like you just don't see that as much anymore, which is a good thing because I think comedy needs to evolve. But yeah, I think it was it was nice that they kind of got it out of the way because even I was wondering, I was like, eh, are we gonna are we gonna do this? And then they didn't, and uh, it was kind of nice that that they they kind of put a twist on it. So we have a few special guests in this episode as the we have a montage of the boys inviting people to the floor party they meet up with. Jenna Fisher, who makes a biggest Pam on the office just a few years later as a senior who turns them down. And then uh, Tom Welling, a.k.a. the man who plays Clark Kent in Smallville, being invited to the party. And Steven gets chastised for inviting guys hotter than them to the party. That's two pretty huge names to have as just extras on a show in hindsight. Uh, Tom Welling, th- I think this is like a year before Smallville. Like this is just before he is on that show. So that's that's kind of a big so, deal. For, so for reference, this show, uh, Undeclared, debuts September 25th, 2001. Smallville debuts October 16th, 2001, literal weeks away. Oh, wow. That's, that's pretty incredible. Uh, just for the record, I want to say that Smallville went for 10 seasons – if you could believe it, over 200 episodes. Yeah, people really, people really like that uh, that show, as it turns out. Yep, when it was uh, when it was on the old WB uh, before right. it became even the CW. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then someone I know you want to talk a bit about, or another project they did. Beginning of the episode is Stephen talking to a, a high school friend. We have to assume of how great it's going to be in college, and no, it can leave behind his stuff, and they don't know who he was, and it's going to be a fresh start. And that friend is played by Simon Helberg, best known for his role in The Big Bang Theory. Jerome, take it away. 
So we are never going to talk about the Big Bang Theory ever, ever, ever. I I think it is it is a terrible show. It is just an abomination. It's 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 really not funny. I, Simon Helberg's character especially is the worst. Like I know that people have their have their issues with Kayla Cuoco's character and Jonathan Galecki, but Simon Helberg's character. I, I, I've watched I watched a few episodes of The Big Bang Theory and. Just the way that his character is. It just annoyed me to no end. And just seeing him on this show made me see red. That's that's how bad it is. Like, you know it's bad if I'm watching somebody in another project that they're less famous for and I get and I get angry all over again because of the thing that they did. So th- those are my feelings on Simon Helberg. He is very good. So he did it. He was also in this movie, uh, this Amazon movie called Annette. With Adam Driver and Marion Cotillard, he's much better in that, which is good. Like, I'm glad that he's not in. I'm glad he's in not terrible things. But yeah, I mean, I just saw him. Like, I was like, I really wanted to text Kevin and be like, "Welp, someone from the Big Bang Theory is on here. I quit." But I didn't, Kevin, because I respect you too much. Well, and and he, and again, he's maybe in the screen for a total of 120 seconds, and you never see him again. See, and the funny thing is that I didn't know. Like, I, I, again, I knew very little about the show. So, if he had been a regular Kevin, <laughs> we would have had Kevin, some issues. <laughs> we would have uh, we would have been discussing something else. Trust me, I would have I would have given you a warning, <laughs> and then given you the chance to say no, the right of refusal, and I would have understood. <laughs> yes. Uh, do you agree that the Big Bang Theory is terrible? Oh God, yes. Good. That's all. We, that's all we need to. That's say. literally all we need. That's all. That is end of conversation on Big Bang Theory. May we never speak of it again. So episode two is an interesting one because there's technically two versions of it. The episode that aired is called "Oh, So You Have a Boyfriend." Sort of the fallout of uh, the next day of. Um, Stephen and, and Lizzie hooking up, where he finds out she has a boyfriend, so their future is sort of uncertain, and he's real weird about it. But the way he's real weird about it is very different between the two versions. So in the version that airs, they go to see American Pie, like a campus screening of it, and he's just you know, he's putting his hand on her knee, not knowing how to act, and then when she walks away to go to the bathroom and Eric calls on the phone, he picks it up and is pretending to be this weirdo where that Lizzie went on a boat and sailed away from him and he gets caught and ultimately apologizes and get and gets a kiss. Now the episode that didn't air, they go to an on-campus meeting with Ted Nugent and he just is a complete jackass in front of a whole room of people, literally slamming his body into her and stuff and gets into a tiff with Ted Nugent, which I think would be a way harder thing for him to backtrack from embarrassing for in front of a whole room of people uh, all this than just embarrassing himself in front of her. And this was actually a choice by Fox. So this is the way the show went, which is kind of interesting too, is instead of doing one show for the pilot, they allowed them to do six episodes as like a test run. And then they gave them however much money to do reshoots. And one of Fox's directives was take out the entire Ted Nugent subplot and fill it with something else. Um, and the B story with Marshall stayed in. And I think watching both of those back to back, that was absolutely the right move. I think that the way Steven acts in, in the unaired version, it makes me like him way less than the ultimately the episode that did air. I mean, I still think even in the episode that aired, it's it's kind of borderline. Like, I don't know that 20 years later, like you would write that scene in that way with him 
talking to the boyfriend the way that he does. Like, I don't, I just don't even think that's acceptable now. But I mean, the, the unaired version is, uh, it's, it's, it is rough. And just like Ted Nugent being in the episode is rough because, uh, because of who Ted Nugent is. So it's, uh, it's, it's funny to know that in a world, uh, we have Fred Willard and Ted, Ted Nugent technically in the same episode, and only one of them has been arrested. <laughs> right. Uh, it's, and, and the wrong one of them is dead. I'll just put that out there. Uh, I mean, and the other th- yeah, fair enough. And the other thing, too, is like this is a comedy show. Like the thing with Ted Nugent and Steven is like not funny. Like Ted Nugent is not funny in the show at all. So it just doesn't fit. No, I'm not going to say that what they replaced it with is is amazing but i do think it's it's far better than this just like boring terrible subplot so i'm glad they fixed it in the main episode and then the other two people as we talked about fred willard plays a professor that steven convinces to maybe spice up his class a little bit and he does this god i love the montage of him doing the the history comes alive where he's doing all the impressions of people to make the class a little less boring and then Amy Poehler plays the resident advisor love interest of Lucian uh, before she went on to – she would already done Upright Citizens Brigade, but this is well before she did Parks and Rec and became as huge as she did. Uh, this is also the same year as Wet Hot American Summer, right? 2001? Yeah, so it would have just aired or just been in theaters. So it's pretty funny that Amy Poehler was in like two huge cult things at this point, like in a row basically. And Upright Citizens Brigade has its own cold following, too. Yeah, I mean, Kevin is much more in tuned to the comedy scene than I am, so he will definitely be able to bring that knowledge. But, I mean, look, Amy Poehler has certainly had a really successful career going to SNL, of course, Parks and Rec, which is a huge deal. And now she's, you know, kind of doing her own thing creatively, which when you get when you do a network sitcom for years and you make all the money in the world and that's that's kind of what you get to do now you kind of get to write your own ticket so it's funny to go back and just watch her and see some see you definitely it doesn't feel like it's the same person in a lot of ways like you definitely see some of what's there but you don't really see the persona of Amy Poehler like you would probably even 3 or 4 years later so one of the one of the really fun things about these shows when you catch someone earlier in their career is to like watching them like develop their develop care, not just characters on the show, but developing their personas. And when we talk about another prominent, two more prominent guest stars, I'm also going to address this as well. Uh, so in episode three, Eric visits, this is the first time we get to see Jason Siegel in the flesh and not just a disembodied voice on the phone. And I think this is a good episode because you get to see why Lizzie likes him so much. If you just hear him on the phone, you're like, this guy sucks. But you do see that he's like sort of you feel sort of bad for him because Lizzie ends up dumping him. And uh, you, what I like is that they change again. It's another change of dynamic thing is that Stephen helps Eric win Lizzie back instead of going after her himself. And that causes some some fun scenes and some funny moments. And then the the subplot, Marshall uh in order to impress whatever uh, Rachel gets a parakeet uh, and Mike White plays the pet shop owner. And he's of course also Kim Kelly's deadbeat brother and freaks and geeks. And uh, they also drink a whole lot of beer. Do Marshall on talk about you've got mail. So that's and, drinking and, a beer. Huh? Well, I'll say this, this is, this to me is a really good episode where it shows that the writers basically have 
three stories that aren't necessarily interconnected, but all able to be told. There's a story with Eric and or with with Eric, Lizzie, and Stephen. There's a story with Marshall and Rachel, and there's a story with Ron and Lloyd, and all three of them feel like they get good amount of attention and yeah. Help. And that's really hard to do in a network in a network sitcom, yeah. especially especially when they're when they're doing the single camera. You do generally have like three stories going on at once, and that is that is not something that's easy, especially when you have such a sprawling cast. And I think they manage that very well. And then episode four is not one I love. Jobs, jobs, jobs. Uh, Stephen has to get a job on campus because his dad is strapped for cast between the divorce and his uh, his separated wife going on vacation. And he ends up getting a job in the cafeteria. Uh, Jerry Bednob, who makes a lot of appearances in Apatow stuff, plays Burundi, the boss. Uh, he loves Marshall, who also works in the cafeteria, but does not seem to care for Stephen. And then you get in the sub story, Jeffrey Arand, who is probably best known for the snozberries taste like snozberries and being married to uh why can't i think of her name christina what's her name for mad men christina Hendricks. yeah he was married to christina Hendricks for like a decade one of those met her way before uh mad men stories i think they just recently divorced but he is the uh comedically obsessed uh love interest of rachel which to me feels a lot like judd apatow channeling himself into uh, another character the impressions were funny for like one scene and then it just kept going. And I'm like, all right, Judd, let's, let's, let's stop. Let's tone it down. I feel, I feel similarly about his movies. Sometimes I'm like, Judd, we're at the two hour mark. Let's, let's wrap this up. Wrap it up. I can't believe that there's a Pete Davidson movie and he had it go two hours and 17 minutes. Yes, you can. Just, I just, it's Pete Davidson, man. Like, come on. I know I'm completely sidetracking here, but that just still annoys me to this day. Anyway, go ahead, Kevin. <laughs> no, I, that's it. That's all I just want to say was just like not not my favorite episode. And it's also yeah, this is de- this is definitely one of the weaker ones. It's one like you know they have this jobs thing and they just never come back to it again. Which I which honestly is for the best. <laughs> yes, I agree. Nobody is. This is not the kind of show that has the. Um, has the um, the ability to really dive deep into what it means to be a college student and get jobs. Like, if this is like an hour-long dramedy like Freaks and Geeks, okay, maybe you could do this, but that's not what this show is. No, not at all. Episode 5, Sick in the Head, Marshall is really sick. We talked about this before with, like, Rachel wanting him to do the homeopathic home remedies and Ron really trying to get him to the hospital, but Ron also encourages him to do it because it gets him closer to her and it backfires this to me is like the one man Marshall show with him playing sick the whole episode long. And then on the side thing, you have Stevens had Lloyd pursue real relationship with women instead of one night stand. And that goes awry. And Steven being consistently annexed to the rec room as Lloyd is getting it on with a bunch of people. You have Jenna Fisher early again in the episode as one of Lloyd's sexual one night stands. And then uh, the girl that he tries a relationship with and it goes awry is with Catherine town, who was his real life wife at the time. I think they had met on a show, quickly got married a couple weeks later, and it was over, I think, very shortly after the show aired. But I was like, I don't know this woman. Who is she? And I looked her up, and I was like, oh, all right, well, that worked enough for, for casting for the role. Uh, but yeah, to me, this was all about Marshall and his sickness, and the rest of the stuff was what it was. And this show and this episode is why Rachel is anti-vax. Yes, exactly. Now, the, the next episode is, I think, my least favorite of the of the series. Episode six, The Assistant. 
you mentioned that it's felt like it was Judd doing or, or Sandler doing a favor for Judd. This was also airing in November, which I think is a sweeps month. It's this in May. And I think it felt like Fox was getting a big coup, like, oh, my God, we're getting Adam Sandler to be on our half hour show. Uh, and boy, does he phone it the F in in this episode. So I was going to make a joke about I wrote down a joke about him phoning it in. And then he literally phones it in <laughs> later on in the episode. Correct. So it's him and, and Alan Covert and, and Jonathan Lochran who are in all his stuff. Uh, his real life assistant, you know, the lead from Grandma's Boy, you, you know, the guys. They've been in a bunch of things. And then like the the side story with Lloyd bonding with Hal is sort of really half baked. And it's just this whole episode did not work for me. Like, yes, I'm sure Fox was very happy to get Adam Sandler, but the performance episode itself are really half-hearted. I do think Lizzie try, can't not being able to get her story straight on what happens when she goes away with Adam Sandler for the night is very good. And Ron also being wildly excited that Adam Sandler remembers him. Ron is, is like the best part of this episode for sure. This uh, is the episode yeah. where I feel like Seth Rogen, it, it all clicked together. I think to an extent I felt it in episode five, but – it really feels like Seth Rogen was on in this episode. He is the best part. And I generally feel like that, that the rest of the cast, I think their performances are very good in this episode. Adam Sandler is very bad and his entourage does almost nothing. So I think that's what really drags the episode down. But it feels like the other cast members kind of really elevate their games and it kind of holds up for the rest of the season. So I think the rest of the cast kind of found themselves in this episode. So that's the one thing I will say that is positive. But yeah, Adam Sandler is, he's a weird guy because the impression that I get is that he is a very introverted shy guy when he's not on and he wasn't on in this episode and that's kind of the problem. No, yeah, no doubt about it. If a type of Adam Sandler had showed up for this performance, we might have a very different opinion of it. Uh, but I do like that it's it, this to me is very realistic. Not the him coming back to the dorm and hanging out with people, but a lot of universities will get comedians or or musicians to come to try to do like one one or two big things a semester as like a weekend. Like, please don't go out and kill yourself getting drunk kind of event. And we we had a we we had comedians like. Um, uh, like Aziz Ansari and a couple other of those folks come. We had bands come like three, six mafia, Ben folds, whatever to campus. So it felt like maybe a school in Southern California or in wherever in California they are to get Adam Sandler. I don't know about a, a college that seems to be like this one, but still this does happen at colleges for sure. Yeah. I mean, that's how we got an evening with Kevin Smith, which there you go. I mean, an evening with Kevin Smith, whatever you think about him now, that first evening with Kevin Smith is unreal, just incredible. The print, yeah, the print story and the and the um, oh god, what's the director of Wild Wild West? That, uh, the super, the John Peters Superman yes. Spider story is those two just, are worth it. It's, I mean, it's just incredible. Like, it's absolutely amazing. If you've never heard those, go to YouTube and find them immediately, especially the print story. Absolutely, and then episode seven. On the flip side of that, this is called Addicts. I think you – I have one of my favorite guest appearances in Will Ferrell. He plays a townie who you can pay him to write your papers for you. Problem is he does a lot of speed and is pretty unreliable. And it's called Addicts because everyone gets credit cards. Steven, Lizzie, and Rachel spend their money on this guy to get papers done for them so they can get good grades. 
Meanwhile, you have Lloyd and Ron investing in stocks, making get making money off money they don't have, and then you have Marshall with the wad, the Deus Ex Machina to get him out of trouble. But for me, this was a well balanced Will Ferrell. You got the crazy scenes with him, but then you got the 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 funny scenes with him. Sometimes he can be too much. I feel like this was just the right amount of Will Ferrell in this performance. So it's funny that you mentioned the too much thing because that's specifically what I wanted to address. Uh, I'll get to that in a second, though. So as somebody who used to be a college instructor, it's funny. We recorded the Freaks and Geeks episode, and I was the, epi- the show about high school. Now we're talking about the college show, and I'm a high school teacher. So it just goes to show you how quickly things can change. But as uh, as somebody who is a college instructor, the idea of students paying to have somebody else write their papers for them is uh, is definitely one of my worst nightmares. So this definitely uh, this definitely got to some things. Um, the scheduling of the papers and just how many the writing was always strange to me. Not sure how realistic that is, but this is uh, this is Will Ferrell at is at his best. I think that. It builds to him going over the top and being crazy at the, by the end. He doesn't, he starts at like a two or three and he's at a nine or a 10 by the end. It feels like the problem that Will Ferrell has consistently had in the last 10 years or so is that he is an eight to 10 for the, for an entire movie and that doesn't work. And I think that that's, that's one of the reasons that I don't think, I think he struggled in the last 10 years for that reason. Also, maybe not picking the best projects of all time, but here you definitely get a, a very good version of Will Ferrell. Um, I, maybe it has to do with the fact that somebody else is in control of the creative and he doesn't really have a lot to do with it, but uh, he's very good here. And when we talk about people literally being just before they were stars, Old School is about a year and a half away at this point, and that is the movie that pretty much made Will Ferrell into a star. So Will Ferrell is very close to just hitting it big because he does old school and then he does Anchorman and then he's then he's pretty much one of the biggest stars in comedy for the next 10 years. No doubt about it. Yeah, that's that's a big one for sure coming down the pike. So episode eight, we both watched but was not aired. That's God Visits. Uh, Steven is led by a student to Christianity which is easy for him to get into as his like frustrations with Lizzie are mounting about if they're an item or not, which is bad timing because Lizzie is is starting to send signals to him that she wants to get together with him again. Meanwhile, uh, Lloyd in his psychology class learns about existentialism and feels like life is meaningless. And that's a very fun dynamic to play against each other. And then you have the, this is where the, the one female uh, roommate you never see moves out and, Marshall wants to turn to a party room, doesn't – it's not tenable, and so they eventually let uh, Christina Piano move in to the room, Tina, and uh, that's where you would see her move in. But in the actual Fox, she's just there as a roommate the next episode. Um, and then as the the side characters, it's a blink and you missed it for Felicia Day, who's Sheila, the student who's moving out. David Paschezzi, he's an improv actor from Chicago. He's the professor who talks about existentialism, and I love at the end of the scene, he's like, hey, cheer up. It's Taco Tuesday. And then Kevin Hart. You talk about superstars here. Kevin Hart plays the student who leads Stephen to Christianity, and then when Stephen sees him making out with another woman and realizes he doesn't have to be celibate and that he made a mistake, goes back to Lizzie. So that it doesn't get much bigger than Kevin Hart these days. 
Yeah, it's it's wild to think that Kevin Hart is just here. He's very short. And uh yeah, I'm not a big Kevin Hart person. I don't know if if you have any particular particularly strong feelings. I've never really liked anything that Kevin Hart has done. Uh, probably except for this show. I think that he is perfectly used here in this episode. He's also in another one. But it's pretty crazy to think that one of the biggest stars in comedy is just in this show. One of the few, again, one of the few characters of color on the show as well. Yeah, I think he's uh, he's well used here. And uh, I think his persona is perfect for, for this kind of role as well. I, I like him in this. I like him as the aggravated customer in 40-Year-Old Virgin. I like the couple podcasts I've heard him on. I think he seems like an incredibly nice person. Uh, his brand of comedy and movies and stuff is typically not for me, but I have nothing against him as a dude. Yeah, um, I completely forgot he was in 40-year-old version. <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, so episode nine, Parents Weekend. I really like that they had a Parents Weekend here. You, all, you don't get to see like everybody's parents in this, but you see Marshall's parents. You finally get to meet Steven's mom. That is interesting to me because you sort of have what's going on with Steven here where Steven has sex with Liz and he's like, great, we're dating. And everyone's like, no, that doesn't mean you're dating. What are you talking about? Uh, Hal and his ex-wife hook up in Steven's dorm room and he's like, great, things are good with us. And she's like, not exactly. I, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. And then they, they stay apart. So I like that that's sort of the same thing here. And you have Marshall having to – come out to his parents as a music major, which doesn't happen. He's relieved with, and then a little bit, one of the more shakier plots, you have Lloyd's sister visiting and she wants to hook up with Ron and Ron isn't down with that. And that is a very shaky subplot, uh, altogether. Um, and, and Kimberly Stewart, who plays Lloyd's sister, doesn't really get a whole lot to do other than be a, a, a pretty much a two dimensional female here. So, Another bad instance of female casting in an Apatow show. But the mom does great. Yeah, the mom does great. And uh, we also get to, uh, I, I don't know if you were going to mention this, but uh, the great Joel McKinnon Miller is uh, Marshall's dad. And yes. I I was like, where's Hitchcock? We have Scully. <laughs> like, I'm so used to those two together. It, it actually threw me off. I couldn't tell it was Joel McKinnon Miller at first. And I think part of the reason, because Hitchcock wasn't with him. Yeah, I, it's it's so funny because he was definitely somebody – I didn't remember he was Marshall's dad. But I was like, I've 100% seen that guy in a million TV shows as bit roles. And then like he gets Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I'm like, oh, it's that guy. And I'm like, oh my god, he finally got a role that stuck. And like I was so happy for him just knowing he's been a character actor forever. Finally getting a lead in a show like, like Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which was so great. Uh, and that you're right. When I went back and watched it, I'm like, this is strange to see him not in this role. Uh, but yes, he's one of the guest stars. Kimberly Stewart, Rod Stewart's daughter plays Lloyd's sister, uh, Mary Kay place who was in mash and also won a primetime Emmy for Mary Hartman was Rachel's overbearing mother. Uh, I love the line that Rachel says that she sent her to rehab because she had one joint that Rachel was too scared to smoke. Uh, and I think seeing her mother and the way she's treated also makes you realize why Rachel can be so frazzled sometimes. Yes, I, it definitely lends some very good background to Ra to Rachel's character. And uh, I, I mostly liked this episode. I think the uh, 
everything going on with Lloyd's sister that eh, I was kind of eh on it, but uh, there were definitely some funny moments uh, with Rachel and her mom. And it's definitely, it, it definitely is kind of a typical like sitcom, especially for college kind of thing, but uh, they made it work. Uh, strong outing. This is probably the strongest outing for the female characters. Ron also, I think the, the rant he has about like, I can't do her. Then, then my name will become slang and British for bad sack. Marshall, I was looking everywhere for you. Look, Lloyd's sister uh-huh. asked me to deflower her. Wow, that's quite an honor. Lloyd congratulated you. Yet? I don't care about Lloyd. No, I care about me. Me, I'm freaking out. Okay, it's too much pressure. Her first time, you know. I mean, what if it's terrible? Okay, and then and then she she remembers this her her whole life. How do you know it's going to be terrible? Trust me, it'll be terrible. Okay, man, and then, and then, and then she'll, she'll tell her friends across the pond, and like the name Ron will be like their new little secret inside joke for bad sex. You know how how was your shag? Oh, I got Ron. You Ron me. It was terrible. You know. It almost feels like Seth Rogen should go back to doing like either a multicam, either streaming or cable like a premium cable like sitcom like. Uh, that's it just it really made me want to see Seth Rogen do a TV show because I think his talents are so much better used on it. And then in episode 10, Eric visits again. You get the world of Eric fleshed out a little bit more because you get to see his two friends and his co-workers at Pop Copy. Kyle Gass, Eugene is his character's name, best probably known for the other half of Tenacious D, who is not Jack Black. And then David Krumholtz plays Greg, who was Neil's older brother from Freaks and Geeks. And this is where Eric finds out Lizzie cheated on him. I think it's very funny the way he discovers that. He wants to go beat up Steven. And then when Steven actually gets hurt, he uh, turns back into the soft uh, Eric that we have come to know and, and love. And I think this is maybe my favorite episode of the season. It is. Uh, it's kind of a weird one just because Eric just goes into almost full on psycho mode. I'm always happy to see David Krummeltz, though. I think I really liked his guest appearance in Freaks and Geeks. I, I really liked him here. I think he's he's just a very good, fun actor in these kinds of roles. And I think he just – I think he really helps – I think he helps the Eric, Eric character out a lot as well in terms of making him feel less like a psychopath. So it was definitely good to see him. I'm a little bit more mixed on – uh, the episode itself, just because the Eric Stevens stuff is kind of, it's kind of creepy. Although I will say this is a very good uh, Baruchel performance in terms of what he's doing, reacting to Eric and uh, kind of being manic and concerned and emotional. Uh, this is definitely one of the better Baruchel performances of the I, season. His reaction to when like Lloyd is telling him like, oh, in England, you're fighting all the time. You're just like enjoying a cup of pudding and bam, you get blindsided. His reaction to him hearing that, like, what are you talking? about is very good and uh the pop copy guys singing or screaming along to danger in the car is one of my favorite moments of the show too like to be known as the other half of tenacious d as opposed to your name or like just a celebrity like that's kind of what you are i think he's fine with it to me it's I, mean, almost- I am i am sure that he has a big pile of money regardless but right. yeah to me to me it's almost like being andy richter to, to conan 
but I feel like Andy Richter has like he's kind of established somewhat on his own a little bit more like he like Andy Richter controls the universe is kind of a cult show and like he's definitely done some other things aside from Conan. All right, fair enough. Again, I, but but I'm saying I feel like they're two guys who they don't mind playing to the bigger name. Oh yeah, especially when because didn't Andy Richter leave Conan and then when Conan got the Tonight Show, Andy Richter came back. Isn't that what happened? I think I think vice versa. I think when he got the Tonight Show, he was gone, and then when he got when Conan got the TBS show, he came back. Right. Okay. And that, then he was that, with them till the end, till the till it ended just now, and we'll see if he's back with whatever the the HBO version of Conan is. Yep, for sure. All right, all right. So now we have a, a two parter uh, where kind of classic college, like you got to talk about Greek life on a college show. So you get episode eleven, Russian Pledge, and episode twelve, Hell Week. Both were directed by, and I apologize, so I'm butchering this. Uh, Jay Chandra Sekar of Broken Lizard fame. And he's also done episodes of Arrested Development. He did an episode of Community, things like that in television. Uh, but this is where Steven feels like he's still trying to find himself. He's getting he's tired of getting picked on by his roommates. And because his dad's also a legacy, he rushes for Data Thelta Zeta on the campus. And first episode is sort of like the good promising life people see of uh, of Greek life. You get this brotherhood, friends, drinking, parties, a life outside of collegiate life, women, all this sort of stuff. And Lizzie also decides to pledge for the uh, the sister organization within Data Delta Zeta. That's the first episode. Second episode is the ramifications of that. Steven's getting hazed to the point where he quits. It causes a fight between Data Delta Zeta and his roommates. Ultimately, they end up uh, coming to terms with each other and splitting, and that's that. But a lot of Freaks and Geeks as a special guest here. Steve Banos, who is Mr. Kowchevsky from Freaks and Geeks, is Hal's old fraternity brother. He's also the father of Sam Levine, who is Neil from Freaks and Geeks. He plays the leader of the fraternity. And Natasha Melnick, Cindy from Freaks and Geeks. Uh, Not a lot of screen time, but she plays one of the sisters in the sub-sorority of the fraternity that Lizzie is pledging. So – uh, of course, this is a topic had to be covered in college life, and uh, Sam Levine does a great job. It feels like Sam Levine, this is an evolution of his character from Freaks and Geeks because of the way that he behaves and just how much of an asshole he is. Like, he's totally the kid that was bullied in high school and then is in college and has now become the bully. That's the impression that I got. And, yeah, I definitely think you, you have to address Greek life. I think Greeks, I, I think that these types of organizations are the bane of college existence, but they are definitely something that you want to address. And uh, yeah, I really like this two-parter. This was, this was definitely uh, the show. The, the show was definitely clicking at this point for me. And uh, I really enjoyed this. And uh, I'm sure you were watching Natasha Melnick respectfully as always. Respectfully. And I do love that because you mentioned I think you're totally right about how Sam Levine's character was because I love like the obviously more prototypical frat guy being like, I told you made to meet too many pickles. The only reason you're the leader of this is because you're the one who do all the paperwork. Like it gives you a very clear idea of uh, of how he is uh, viewed by the other fraternity brothers there. Yeah, I don't love Greek type stuff all the time, but this is done very well, especially the second part really when they when they get to the – the revenge stuff between the two groups, I think, works really well. Uh, it's just unfortunate that nobody ordered a liter of cola. <laughs> I love Beer Fest, but it really feels like the the magic of Super Troopers never was recaptured again. Uh, 
and I'm not even a huge fan of Super Troopers. I love Beer Fest. That's the only one of their movies that I really like. Yeah, that's my favorite for sure. uh, Beer Fest is great, though. Um, Just incredible. But yeah, I'm not a big Broken Lizard guy. But yeah, it definitely feels like the uh, the magic is gone. Like even like I know people who didn't even like the second Super Troopers for for the same reason that I'm sure people didn't like the second Clerks. So then we get another two-parter kind of after this. You get episode 13, Truth or Dare, and episode 14, The Day After, where the guys are sort of, in their words, worried that the that Lizzie and uh, Rachel think of them too much as brothers, which is obviously very concerning to especially Marshall and, uh, and Stephen, although for this like at one episode only, Lloyd now kind of wants to get with Rachel. So they devise this game of Truth or Dare – to not only break that stigma, but also Ron has been crushing on this tour guide of campus named Kelly, who is played by Busy Phillips, and they get her to come over, and it establishes them as a new couple. Lizzie and Stephen hook up again, and Rachel ends up kissing uh, uh, Perry, of all people. Uh, and yeah, and then the day after is just... Lloyd gives Stephen bad advice. Stephen and Lizzie kind of go their separate ways for a boys' night out and a girls' night out, and they end up back together at the end of the episode. Truth or Dare, I think, is much stronger than the second half. I ultimately like the Truth or Dare game, even if I think some things don't age the best, like Perry kind of lying to get a kiss from Rachel. Uh, but but I digress. Uh, I also do really like that they were uh, – oh, this is in the dorm one where they were playing the uh, – the SmackDown video game. And uh, Perry's like, yeah, I, he's like, oh no, I suck at video wrestling. How will I tell my parents? Uh, had a third that, that made me laugh, especially, especially because of the, of the, uh, which, which WWF game were they playing? Was it SmackDown? Yeah, it was either the first, it, it would, based on the time it would have been either the second or third SmackDown PlayStation two game. So I always, anytime I see wrestling in a show, I'm always so curious to know, which staff member was a wrestling fan because there's this where they're playing the video game. And then there's an episode later where they have footage from Raw and SmackDown. Yeah. So I, and it's weird. Cause it's, so they have a rock standee, I think in some of the episodes right. in one of the rooms, there's this where it's, and they're playing like, I know one of them is playing as Bubba Ray Dudley. And then the footage they watch is Bubba Ray Dudley. I'm like, someone just a huge Dudley boys fan on the staff. Like what's going on here? Uh, and I would like to know their thoughts on 2022 Bully Ray and uh, his his thoughts on wrestling. Fuck That's what him. I want to know. <laughs> Fuck him forever. But anyway, so yeah, uh, what did you think of this? I think any time that you have them playing games and stuff, I think that can lead to some amusement. Like, I think one of the go- one of the funniest parts of Freaks and Geeks was the uh, spin the bottle game. And this isn't quite the same, but it does kind of have a similar thematic purpose in terms of what it's doing. So I think them playing Truth or Dare was hilarious. And I do like the idea of the boys and the girls kind of splitting up and doing their own thing and kind of exploring like the differences and how they behave and things like that. And of course, you get the great Busy Phillips, who I think that in terms of rewatching Freaks and Geeks, her performance really stood out to me. And yeah, it was it was good to see her in this role too. Uh, very different uh, from Kim Kelly, but uh, definitely more so playing into the persona of who Busy Phillips is as kind of a whatever real person is, like her podcasts and kind of her talk show. So you definitely get more of the Busy Phillips that I think we're used to, as opposed to the one who was on uh, Freaks and Geeks. The only thing I wish was that in the second episode. 
I wish there was a more extended scene of Rachel just ordering insane drinks at the bar. Cause I always love a good list, uh, like montage like that. I feel like the Mike Sure shows are very good at this. Like, I feel like the good place had a host of restaurants and things like that. And Bob's burgers always has the running gag of yes. the various special bur- specialty burgers. And even in the theme, like the opening theme song, like the store that's next door to them is always changing. I mean, one of the things that's amazing to me about Bob's Burgers is that they've been on 12 seasons. Every episode has a different burger title. I feel like if they ever – like, they're going to have to stop the show because they run out of burger names. Yeah, that sounds about right. But I feel like there's got to be just like – like, it's one of those things where they have, like, the the great ones that are chosen and then just, like, a, a Word document of, like, 300, like, so-so ones that, like, if, and like break glass in case of emergency. Yeah, for sure. So it'll be a while. So then episode 15, the perfect date. Steven tries to give Lizzie the perfect date to sort of cement the relationship, I suppose. But what you find out is that even though Steven's trying to be a changed man in college, you can't escape from your past. And we knew he was a geek in high school, but we didn't know he was Matrix LARPing level of geek. And who better to expose that than Martin Starr? Coming back as Theo, Steven's friend from high school. Naturally, of course, he was Bill on Freaks and Geeks, so you're checking off a lot of the heavy hitters of Freaks and Geeks when you go on, but Martin Starr really shined through in this episode. Theo is the type of person who would miss the fact that The Matrix is a trans allegory. That's what I can say about Theo and kind of the way that he behaves in this episode. (laughs) It's very strange watching this, too, when like a new Matrix movie just came out a couple months ago. Would not have called that. It's uh, it's pretty crazy to think that there even is a fourth Matrix movie, especially after the uh, the second and the third one. Uh, I want a podcast with Theo and Steven talking about the Matrix, all the Matrix sequels. That's what I want, Kevin. Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> I mean, we don't. It doesn't need to happen, but in, you know, I do. Be, there is something I think about, like in character podcasts. Like if we got a podcast from Brock Meyer, that would be very fun. I mean, Brockmire does a podcast, but in I the don't... show, but like if, if Hank Azaria did a podcast, uh, okay. Brockmire, that would be very fun. To okay, me. that's fair. That's yeah. that's totally that was released for us to listen to. I'd be all about it. Um, I uh, actually, oh, go ahead. Okay. I was gonna say I, Martin Starr is very good. I really like him. I, I think he's great in the Spider-Man movies, even though he doesn't have big roles. I, he's somebody that I'm really a fan of too, from Freaks and Geeks, and even in this episode, I think he's very good. He would put together the trophy case for Spider-Man in high school, too. He absolutely would. It's great to see him go from being a freak to a teacher as well. (laughs) Totally. Uh, I do like the around the world scenes. They're shot very well. Um, And I I do. It's it's not like the most exciting storyline, but I do appreciate that. Like at least Lloyd's exploits. Some girls like finally knew about them and turned him down. Um, So at least there was that. Yes, I would I would agree with that. Uh, episode 16 is a weird one. Uh, so this, I believe, they knew when they were making this in the last episode that the show was canceled and that whatever the series order was being cut short in the last two episodes. So they get kind of weird with it and they get have Hal and uh, Hal, Stephen's dad and Hillary, Amy Poehler's character, the RA, hook up. Uh, this causes some... Um, uh, Lucian, the RA, being a jerk to Steven and Steven paying him back, uh, like water slides in the hallway and things like that. And the side story, Marshall dates a Japanese girl, which makes Rachel jealous. 
Rachel is not so nice about the the playful teasing they do with her and Marshall, but it is also kind of fun that when when Ron tells Marshall what Rachel did, he's not mad. He's excited because it means he likes her. And uh, poor Yuki, the girl he's dating, uh, gets dumped. And that she's played by Yuki Kudo, who is a Japanese actress. The the only two American films I could find she did that we know are Memoirs of a Geisha and Rush Hour Three. Maybe she's in something else you would have known, but that's what stuck out to me. Uh, but that's really, uh, I mean, when I say subplot, that's a pretty big subplot to what the the big overarching story is. It kind of feels like a little bit of a middle finger to Fox to just do some some strangeness. This is definitely, so I mentioned community earlier. It kind of feels like we're almost in community territory with this episode because things with, things get really, really absurd in terms of what they do. Uh, to Lucian and just some of the things that happen, like there's literally a brick wall at some point. So it really feels like we're crossing over into that kind of territory. So, I mean, look, I certainly can't blame someone for giving the middle finger. Like if you're going to give me money and you're going to cancel me, well, I'm going to do exactly what Conan did. I'm going to do exactly what Ted Apatow did. I don't know if it makes for a great TV episode though, if that makes sense. Yes, it, that does make sense to me. Um, like it was, I mean, it there, was, are, there are elements of it that I think were funny, but I don't think – like especially the Yuki stuff was kind of gross. Yeah, it, it was the, – the the stuff with like the, the revenge of – or the, the dynamic of Steven and Lucian was fun to watch in the way of like it was sort of like a party or just seeing like the absurdity of the pranks of like, yeah, like Lucian comes – the elevator doors open and there's a bunch of concrete blocks in his way. Um, and just the fact that he is so meek and mild and has no real authority is – is just so fun to watch. He plays it very well. I would agree. Their their dynamic is very fun, for sure. And then the last episode, Eric's POV, is an interesting one. Um, and I believe they even straight up called it more or less a backdoor pilot to see if an, a show with uh, Eric and the Pop Copy guys would work, which I think is strange because I did not find so much of them and what the girls in this episode all that interesting. You do get Ben Stiller as the, the guest here is Rex, Eric's ex-stepdad he's still in touch with. Meanwhile, you have – and it's it's strange because I feel like this episode works very well as a season finale but not a series finale because it's – you you have the thing where we talk about Girls Gone Wild. All the guys are watching Girls Gone Wild in the dorm and Steven wants to watch and Lizzie doesn't understand why he wants to watch. And she gets a bad dye job uh, in her hair and she wants Steven to be there while she fixes it. And it's like Steven needs to decide does he want to be a boy or be a boyfriend. And ultimately, he does decide to be the boyfriend, and you get a great ending where he and uh, Lizzie are kissing, and the elevator opens, and Eric sees it, and his dreams of maybe winning her back are shut down. And John Favreau directs this episode. So I don't know. Like The fact that they found it to be a backdoor pilot for an episode in the pop copy, guys, does not work for me at all. But I do think, like I said, if it, if it was the season finale versus the series finale, it would it would – be more satisfying but it's not the best like farewell to our main people for sure so john favreau who basically helped create the mcu right is the director of this yep that's the same guy that's pretty crazy so i there was a post-credit sequence where judd apatow uh, walked up to seth rogan and was talking about putting a team together to make really good comedy for the next 10 years did you catch that i did not catch that my, i guess my my dvds led me astray so, uh, so John Favreau, uh, he really knows how to how to create those universes, huh? I guess so. Uh, yeah, this is another. I mean, again, when you're canceled, I mean, you're just you're you're kind of doing some weird stuff. 
And I like Jason Segel. I like David Krummeltz. In terms of these characters and this potential plot line, I don't know if it would have worked as a TV show. Like, maybe if it became more workplace, like, if it was a workplace sitcom, maybe it could work, but it would have been tough. The Die Job storyline with Lizzie definitely felt like something that you would have seen, like, in a 1970s sitcom, not something you would see in 2001. What do you think? Yeah, I don't I don't think so necessarily either. But, you know, I guess that does sort of reek of like what what they envisioned college kids would be doing at this time, which I don't know, maybe they would. But, yeah, don't think I'd see it on TV. These I days. do like that Ben Stiller get once again is a part of a canceled Judd Apatow project. Don't think it'll be the last one either, or at least Judd Apatow adjacent. Yeah. Has Ben Stiller how many has he been in a Judd Apatow movie, though? Has he been in a Judd Apatow movie? I don't um, think so. I don't think so either. I also need to see the list of like what counts as an Apatow movie. You know, I'm talking about like movies he's directed, not oh, right, right, produced. Like I don't like definitely wasn't a Foil Virgin or Knocked Up. Did he? He wasn't in Superbad, but I don't know that that counts. Yeah, I mean that's that's a produced thing. I mean, I don't think he had anything to do with Tropic. I mean, Tropic Thunder was directed by Ben Stiller. Right. I don't necessarily think that Apatow had anything to do with it, even though it feels like a lot of Apatow adjacent people are in it. Is he in Funny People? I don't. If he was, it's a cameo. I haven't watched Funny People in a while. Oh, you know what? Okay, so I looked at. There's an old video of Sandler, and it features a young Ben Stiller in it. So, like in. Old footage, yes. Okay. So here's the thing. Remember when I talked about at the two-hour mark, it's like, let's wrap this up. Uh-huh. Funny People is the very personification of that. <laughs> that movie's like two hours and 20 minutes. <laughs> and just why? It's just – the problem is that when you get so much power and you get to edit and make your own movies – and you don't, and nobody's telling you no. That's how you get a movie that's two hours and twenty minutes. This is this is why there's a great Pat Oswalt bit. He's like, all the great movies are shot by men, but then edited by women. And he t- and he talks about like giving birth or stuff like that. Like, oh my god, look yes. at my my huge dick and how much film I shot. Like, that's great, sweetie. Okay, you go over there. No, I gotta take care. I'll clean up this mess. And you get that's what. There's so many great movies like that. Yes, absolutely. Shot by a man, edited by a woman. Yes, Thelma Shoemaker, um, Mrs. Lucas. Yeah, I mean, it's that is Pat Oswalt. That's absolutely right. It's a great bit. Yeah. Uh, so that's the show, but there's two planned stories for a season two that came out. There's a bonus feature on the DVD for a script for an episode titled Lloyd's Rage, where he's having a spat with a like a, uh, with another drama student and that was allegedly to be played by Topher Grace but Apatow and the one of the that 70s show co-creators Mark Brazil were at odds so whether Topher Grace would appear on the show or not is sort of up in the air but the big one would have been Linda Cardellini finally coming on the show as Eric's new girlfriend in real life they were dating and the plan was going to be that uh the Eric's POV he sends out an evite for his birthday party Lizzie and Steven would attend the birthday party and she would be there as the new girlfriend of of uh, of Eric, and they would present Lizzie with the piece of cake that has his new girlfriend's face printed on it. Those are the only two future things that I love. The, you know, the Topher Grace thing I could give or take, but Linda Cardellini being in Liz, like there's no weirs in this entire show, and that would have been pretty awesome to get Linda Cardellini in there. Yeah, that would have been. 
he definitely feel it definitely kind of felt like he was missing from the show in, in certain ways. I didn't necessarily feel about feel that way about like John Francis Daly not being in it or James Franco, but it definitely uh, feels like Linda Cardellini could have had a role on the show. And it's unfortunate we didn't get to see it because she's really good. So I think we already discovered our, we discussed our favorite characters. I said, Marsha, you said Ron. Uh, yeah, I stand by that. I think Ron is the best character and Seth Rogen is very good playing this role. And uh, he definitely he has definitely grown up so much in terms of his acting and comedic timing. I mean, you definitely see why he became a huge movie star. He's um, definitely he's yeah. definitely the funniest. I'll give him that for sure. Yes, for sure. Uh, favorite episode. I think I'm going to stick with Eric visits again, but I will say um, addicts is way up like it's it's very close to being and addicts addicts is my favorite episode i think it's the best use of a guest star i think it's the one where the storyline really just comes together it's got a great beginning middle and end. i think everything works about that episode and what are your overall thoughts on the show as someone who's watching it for the very first time I th- I'm, I'm certainly glad that I was finally able to see this in terms of what it is as a cultural artifact. I'm not sure that this is a show that – this is not necessarily my favorite show of all time. I tend to be pretty stingy in terms of the comedies that I watch, and I think that's one of the – especially network comedies – um, just to point that out, the thing that kept me going is I think the performances are very good across the board. I think some of the writing at times is inconsistent, but you really see Jay Baruchel. You really see Seth Rogen. Like you see them growing into their personas throughout. I think Carla Gallo is very good. And Char- we didn't talk as much about Charlie Hunnam, but I think he plays his role very well. And I think that you, you just get a lot of different flavors of comedy uh, throughout with the guest stars, Will Ferrell, Kevin Hart, Adam Sandler, which kind of a mixed bag. But I think that there's this as a piece of, as again, a cultural artifact, I think this is a really, really important show just because you have so many people in front of and behind the camera who are on the cusp of superstardom. And that is not something that you get because it's one thing when you have, oh, there's one or two people, but literally among the main cast, among the guest stars, like you could go across the board and, and, and identify these people as by the end of this decade, these are some of the most important people in Hollywood. And you just don't get that with every show. And, you know, I mentioned Allison Jones being undefeated and I mean, you just see it all across this show. And I think also to, to keep in mind is one of the reasons why I think it's so important is because it was canceled because I think that leads to Judd Apatow being frustrated with the movies. That's what gets him to make 40 year old virgin 40 year old virgin is what keeps the office on the air and makes it helps make it so popular. And that makes NBC's Thursday night comedy, which helps 30 rock parks and rec community all get put on the network which, you know, there's other reasons why those stayed on. Like, like you know, you could say the same thing. Like, if Tina Fey didn't get to be Sarah Palin with 30 Rocks, still be on the earth, those kind of things. But it's important that this because this got canceled, Judd tried the movies, and the movies led to a bunch of other, like the 
the the effect that had the butterfly effect it had on the industry as a whole is remarkable in and of itself uh in talking about you're getting to see it's great to see all these people right before they break out and become huge but i think also because the show itself got canceled is the reason why so many of those things happened as well it's very again that's why i say it's very interesting to me if this show goes on for a couple more seasons it gets canceled for this does judd give Another TV show, another network, another try instead of going to movies. Uh, you know, we'll never know. But the world we got because of Undeclared being canceled is pretty great. And it means that unlike some shows that stick around way too long and burned out, I think Undeclared as is is pretty darn awesome. As someone who watched it again when it was on and then again on DVD over and over again, it's it's a show that I really hold a special place for. And I pulled this quote from Rotten Tomatoes because I think it really – sums up how I feel about the show. And that was, Undeclare lives in the shadow of its Apatow-produced predecessor, meaning Freaks and Geeks, but still delivers an insightful and sweet year of self-discovery on campus. And I think that really surmised the show very well. It'll never get the credit or the the love and affection that Freaks and Geeks does, but it's a really, really good sitcom that if you haven't seen, I highly recommend giving a watch. I would also definitely recommend checking this out for the reasons Kevin mentioned and for the reasons uh, I mentioned, so uh, that's I think that'll put a bow on this uh, on this here episode. Yeah, would you agree that also it's like a crazy easy to watch show? Yeah, I mean it's definitely you got seventeen episodes that are twenty two minutes and thirty seconds, and yeah, I mean it's a breezy watch, which I know people are looking for in these uh, in these times because you know you get a you get your ten hour dramas that are very heavy and. Sometimes those can be hard to watch, even though they're 10 hours and it's 10 episodes. But this is 17 episodes, and it's just a really easy watch. So do we know what we're doing next month? We don't. That's uh, (laughs) probably should have. We are terrible podcast hosts because we don't know what we're discussing next month. We will be back next month, though, talking about something. That's we'll be talking about something. We don't know what it is, but it'll be something. We have, I know we have a, a list of shows to discuss, but we did not decide what we were going to discuss for coming on air. And I was like, oh, is Jerome going to drop something on me that I didn't remember? But I mean, that's fine. I, I, there, there are so many directions we could go in that uh, yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah, so tune in in April to see what we're doing that month. And maybe you'll have an idea what we're doing in May by that point, too. But it'll yes. be right here on the Enter the Real World. What we're really waiting for is we're waiting for – we're waiting for announcements on Barry and Better Call Saul. I think that's part of it, too. So I've got other stuff here at com. In the meantime, my entire Adventure Time show I do with Justin and Brad. Flooping the Pig is up there. I did all of Lost with Ben Lundy. Uh, more Jerome and Kevin Presents on this website. Talking Breaking Bad. Veronica Mars. Better Call Saul. Uh, we did Freaks and Geeks and the Critic for this uh, year. Talking about shows canceled too soon. And I feel like I'm forgetting something else. Brock Meyer. That's it. We also talked about Brock Meyer, so check those out here. And uh, Jerome, what else do you got going on on Enter the Real World? So Brian and I are talking about the 1994 Spider-Man animated series, so definitely go check that out as we are kind of making our way through the episodes. I believe uh, next week, uh, or two weeks, one of the two, Brian and I will be discussing The Batman, the new Batman movie that is almost three hours long. But it's directed by Matt Reeves, so hopefully it's good. That re- that review will be coming your way. And uh, go check the archives. Kevin and I talked about Veronica Mars, Better Call Saul, Breaking Bad, various other canceled shows, Halt and Catch Fire. So to go- definitely go back and do that. And uh, I'm on Twitter at Jerome C. 1985. 
I'm on social media a lot less, which is very good, and it makes me a much happier person, Kevin. Big same. That's why I didn't plug my Twitter. Who knows if it'll be around by the time you listen to this. Oh, wow. What a threat. That's a threat. It's brain poison. Don't get on it. That'll be where I wrap up this podcast is uh, go back to 2001 where social media didn't exist. Create that life for yourself. And we'll be back next month to talk about something. See you then. Every time I look around